To prepare for this morning's message, I'd like to read the 8th chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The difference between a historian and a pastor is that a historian asks, was it so? And a pastor asks, so what? I took a course in uh, Old Testament wisdom literature in seminary, and uh, I had the reputation of being the so what guy. We studied heavy things in that class like Hebrew poetic parallelism and determinism and Heilsgeschichte, which is a big German word for salvation history. And I'd always raise my hand at the end of class and say, so what? And Dr. Hubbard would always tell me, so what? He always had a good answer. But I never wanted to let those classes go without so what being asked. To me, the notion of knowledge for knowledge's sake or art for art's sake has always been a profoundly atheistic notion. Because surely, as Christians... The only reason for pursuing knowledge or pursuing creativity is for God's sake. And anything less than that is implicitly atheistic. And on the horizontal level, surely the only way a Christian will go about justifying the pursuit of some knowledge or the pursuit of making or creating some piece of art or music or craft is because it works good for people. We justify it in the name of love. Because the Bible says on the one hand, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And on the other hand, it says, let everything you do be done in love. The effort to justify the pursuit of knowledge or the pursuit of art for itself is profoundly atheistic. So, when I pose myself the question, How did believers experience the Spirit of God in the Old Testament? I can't think for five minutes without saying, so what? Does anybody care what the Holy Spirit was doing 3,000 years ago? What difference would it make today? And that's real important because if I couldn't answer that question, I think that as a preacher, I would take that, set it aside and 
Think of a new topic for a sermon. Something that has something to do with you people this week. It's no point in just spinning our wheels in antiquarian interest. But there is an answer to the question, so what, when we ask the question, what was the Holy Spirit doing 3,000 years ago before Pentecost? Let me try to answer it. Pentecost, you remember, um, was a Jewish festival. It happened 50 days, Greek word for 50 is Pentecostes, hence the name of the festival, 50 days after Passover. Jesus was crucified during the Passover. 50 days later, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, he does what he said he was going to do in John 15, 26. He sends his Holy Spirit upon the church. John the Baptist, you remember, had said... I baptize you with water. The one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so at nine o'clock, Pentecost morning, it says, a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then Peter stands up and preaches a sermon to explain what's going on here because people were saying, they're all drunk. That's what's going on here. And he says, no, nine o'clock in the morning, we're not drunk. And then he quotes Joel. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In other words, Peter was interpreting Pentecost like this. He's saying, this is a sign prophesied by Joel that the end is here. The last days have come. Messiah has come. He has accomplished redemption. He has ascended back to his father. He has poured out this wonderful sign which you see in here. And between now and the second coming of the Messiah, there are no major events that have to happen before he comes to establish his kingdom. This is the age of the Spirit, and you are in it. That's the meaning of Pentecost. We live in the days of the Spirit, the days that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel had hoped for and prophesied, but didn't themselves see. Now, let me try out an analogy on you to help you understand how the Holy Spirit was acting before Pentecost and how he is acting since Pentecost. Because it's not the same, and yet it is the same. Here's the analogy. Picture a huge hydroelectric dam under construction. Let's take the Aswan High Dam on the Nile, for example. In 1953, President Nasser forecast that this dam was in the preparation stages, planned. 375 feet high and 11,000 feet across. Two miles wide with 12 turbines to produce 10 billion kilowatt hours to light every city 
in Egypt. In 1970, the dam was completed. And in 1971, they had a great dedicatory celebration and the turbines were opened and the reservoir that had formed gushed through and the power was cut loose. Before the dedicatory celebration, however, and during that long period of preparation, the Nile was not completely stopped. It was released, and, and a portion of it went on downstream. And the people living downstream drank from it. They fished in it. They watered their crops with it. It turned their mill wheels they sailed on it and wrote poems about it. It was their life. But when the dam was opened and 10 billion kilowatts were released, Egypt felt the power of the river far beyond those people down there in the valley. And those people themselves now had a potential to enjoy the benefits of the Nile that they had not yet experienced. Well, Pentecost is the opening of the twelve turbines. But prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not trapped in heaven. He was flowing from the heart of God, and the saints of the Old Testament were dependent on him for their very life. What they had, they enjoyed from the Holy Spirit. And so here's my answer to why we ought to take a Sunday morning to look back at the work of the Holy Spirit 3,000 years ago, even though it may seem very irrelevant. And the argument is an argument from lesser to greater. Very simple. If we read the Old Testament and we see that the Holy Spirit trickling around the Aswan Dam was doing amazing things in the lives of people. And we live on this side of the dedication of the twelve turbines, then we ought to look at those and say, well, if they experience that, I ought to be experiencing this. And the whole Old Testament record of the work of the Holy Spirit is, on the one hand, an indictment of a failure to open ourselves to the Spirit's power, and on the other hand, a great encouragement for us to get on with the business of enjoying God, the Holy Spirit, beyond what we presently do. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is mention ten ways that the Holy Spirit was experienced in the Old Testament. And you should ask yourself, as I mentioned these ten experiences of the Spirit that the saints of old had, is there any reason why I shouldn't be enjoying that plus 10 billion kilowatts more today? Here they are. First, the Old Testament believers were conscious of God's Spirit as their creator and sustainer in their normal life. Job 33.4 The Spirit of God has made me the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 104, verse 29. When thou takest away their breath, referring to the animals and man, they die and return to their dust. 
But when thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created and thou renewest the face of the ground. Now, I hope that you all share the world view that Job and the psalmist had. Because you grew up with me in a culture that has a radically different world view. The world around us basically conceives of things as a machine. And everything is being run by imminent laws that are just built into the machine. And God, if he exists, is way off somewhere and he is wound up and it's ticking all by itself. And there are evolutionary processes to bring things into being and there are natural selection that cause uh, there to be funny fish with lanterns hanging down from their chins. But none of that has to do with God's creativity and so on. I hope that you, when you read the Bible, get a radically different worldview. So that when you look around and see nature, you just see it radiant with the activity of the Creator. And you see every breath that you take as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And you look at a little baby being conceived and formed and born as a marvelous, imaginative, creative touch of the Holy Spirit to bring a human being into existence. And you don't just think mechanically like the world tends to think. I hope that you think like C.S. Lewis, who says, instead of thinking simply in terms of laws, you ought to watch the East, and when the sun comes up in the morning, you ought to say, He did it again! Instead of saying, well, of course, you know, this is just nature. He did it again. Life, light, God, all around us every day. When I was out in Stanford, I got to add this. I, I gave this illustration, you remember, from Ranger Rick about these fish that had lights over their eyes and lights down their spines, and, and one has a lantern hanging down, and they live in the bottom of the ocean where nobody sees them, and I just... Exult in that, that God is so creative and has an imagination that just blows your mind. And I told that to those students, and they all loved it. And one guy, however, came up to me afterwards, and in a, in a very, I suppose, Stanford-like seriousness, said, um, now speaking as an evolutionist, Christian evolutionist, you know why those lanterns are there, don't you? I said, well, I, I suppose so. He said, that's because that's the way they catch their food. The food is attracted to the light and they open their mouth and eat them. As if to say to me, so what? Big deal. And that must be the way the world thinks. That must be it. Yeah, evolution is a way of taking all the glory, all the joy, all the imagination, all the personality out of the world. Just a machine. Natural selection. If he didn't catch fish with that natural selection, take it away, he'd evolve into something else. Big deal. What are you so excited about? I don't want that kind of a worldview, and I hope you don't either. Second, the Old Testament believers experienced the new birth and indwelling by the Holy Spirit. Remember last week where Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was utterly bewildered. And do you remember how Jesus responded to his bewilderment? Jesus said, are you a teacher in Israel? And you don't know these things? 
Israelites know these things. These things are true in Israel, aren't they, Nicodemus? The text that uh, Mike read from Romans is very important for determining whether or not people were born again in the Old Testament because the text says, the mind, this is Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, if the spirit really dwells in you. So there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are in the flesh, born of the flesh, and there are people who are in the spirit, filled with the spirit, born of the spirit. These kind of people, it says, are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. They cannot. These kind of people, it says in verse 4, are unable to fulfill the just requirement of the law because they walk according to the spirit. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, are there any people in the Old Testament who please God, who love God, who obey God, who trust God, who delight in God? They're all over the place. They are born of the Spirit, for there is no other way that they could submit to the law of God. And when you start reading in the Old Testament and examining the spiritual experience of these saints, you find things like Numbers 14:24, My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land. Why was he following him fully? He had a different spirit. Numbers 27, 18. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Now, my guess is that some of you have been taught that in the Old Testament the Spirit was upon people, and in the New Testament he's in people. And there's a lot of truth to that. Because in the Old Testament there was a lot of coming upon kings, prophets, warriors, and then departing. That kind of thing. But don't use that to say that's the only way the Holy Spirit was experienced in the Old Testament. All the people who trusted God for salvation were born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they never could have submitted to God and loved God and trusted Him. Third, the Old Testament believers enjoyed the constant presence of God's Spirit. Isn't Psalm 39 one of your favorite psalms for that? And wasn't it written 3,000 years ago? Whither shall I flee from thy spirit? And whither shall I go from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will hold me. The experience of that psalmist was that the Holy Spirit couldn't be gotten away from. He was there everywhere he went. And one of the greatest comforts in my life as a minister is to know that on the one hand, he is within me, giving me the words that I need in tough situations. And when I have to go to a place or talk to somebody that I'm scared to talk to, I can know he's there, he's doing the work. And when I get there, he just puts his arms around me and holds me and make me able to do what I need to do. And that was the experience of the Old Testament saint as he wrote this psalm. And I, I just love, as this morning as I was working on this, I, uh, I thought of Faith and David over in Liberia, and Steve and Julie in the Cameroon, Steve and Dorothy down in South America, and I thought of Harris and Judy over in Japan. I thought, here's the family of Bethlehem at the, what does it say? If I take the wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. One as far as you can get across the Atlantic and the other as far as you can get across the Pacific and to believe and pray that the Holy Spirit is holding them. Isn't that great? If God is calling you to go to some faraway place, the most wonderful thing you can say to yourself from the Lord is, when I get there, he's already there. His arms like this. Welcome to Japan. Welcome to Liberia. I've been here all the time. Fourth, the Old Testament believers experienced the Spirit of God as their counselor and their teacher. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, Ezra is praying and celebrating all the good things that God has done for the people. And he says, Thou gavest thy good spirit to instruct them and didst not withhold the manna from them. The Holy Spirit was given to the Israelites to be their teacher. And probably he taught in two ways. One, he probably inspired Moses and the prophets with words that were his will. And then he worked personally in the lives of the people to make them receptive and to give them enlightenment, help them understand and to receive and use those words. Fifth, the Old Testament saints believed that craftsmanship and artistic ability in the service of God was a gift of God's Spirit. And I mentioned in the first service that... uh, when I pray for Leah, Dean, and the choir, and those of you who are involved in craftsmanship, art, or making things for the Lord's glory, this is the way I pray for you. That you'll be filled with the spirit of craftsmanship. We talk like that? Maybe we don't enough. Let me read you the text where I get this idea. Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name... Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every craft. Isn't that great? Now, of course, we all know that unbelievers have these skills, too, And those are gifts of God, whether they know it or not. But there's something special here. He says, I've called Bezalel by name and I filled him with my spirit to exercise those artistic craftsmanship gifts. And so what I believe was true then and what is true today is that not only does God in his common grace distribute gifts of art and skill to you, But he comes upon some of you in unusual ways to fill you so that the exercise of that skill in the service of him has ministerial gracious effect. It builds people's faith. It draws people to the Lord. That's a great thing to know because I just love the use of the arts in the church. Sixth. Old Testament believers experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit as a power to be bold in the denouncing of sin and evil in their society. Micah chapter 3 verse 8. As for me, Micah says, I am filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might 
to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. I don't think it lies within the power of an ordinary human being to risk his life to denounce sin for God's glory. That's a gift of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon a man or a woman to say this is wrong, this shouldn't be, that's a great sign of the Spirit's fullness. Luke chapter 1 verse 15 says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb before Pentecost. And how did John the Baptist end up? Got his head cut off because he denounced the evil of an illegitimate marriage in a secular ruler. That's what happens to people who get filled by the Holy Spirit and start declaring the will of God to a world that has gone awry. Surely today we need men and women filled by the Holy Spirit who will expose and denounce the evils of our society that we have grown so accustomed to, we just say ho-hum when we see them. For example, the exploitation of women's bodies and the debasement of sex in advertising. There's a Nagley advertising sign at the corner of Chicago and 17th Street that makes me so angry. I wish I knew who to talk to because of what it does to men's minds as they drive thousands of them west on I-94 every day. What about the unconscionable destruction of human life through abortion on demand? How we have grown accustomed to this murderous slaughter of the innocents in our day. Even if you are willing to say it's all right in the case of rape and certain other extreme cases. Even if that's okay, there's murder going on every day because of the way we approach that kind of destruction. Or what about the maneuvers of our own country to destabilize other governments? Or what about the gross waste and gluttony of American life? Or what about the cavalier attitude towards divorce and remarriage, which God hates, the scripture says? Or what about the multi-million dollar promotion? Promotion as though it were glorious of alcohol and cigarettes, which are nothing less than body killers and family destroyers. Surely, if the Holy Spirit falls on the church Men and women will stand up and say to the world that God created for his glory, these things ought not to be. Whether the world pays attention or not, somebody will say it because people who are filled by the Spirit don't blink at evil. They don't get accustomed to it. Seventh, the saints of old experienced the victory over fear through the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a beautiful passage in uh, Haggai, chapter 2, verse 5, where the people are trying to build the temple after a long period of exile. They just come back. They're discouraged because the temple doesn't look anything like what they had enjoyed in the beginning. And God comes to them and says, Work, work, for I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Fear not. They knew the Spirit was with them in that city, working through them and in them. And so it took fear away. And I simply say, 
if, if people who had been under God's judgment for 70 years in Babylon had just returned out of judgment, could look to God, expect mercy, and be fearless, how much more should we, who have all the assurances of God's mercy and power in the Lord Jesus' death for us, how much more should we be fearless in the execution of our duty and in love? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Eight. Some Old Testament believers were enabled by the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary feats of power for the good of God's people. For example, Samson. It says in Judges 14, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore a lion asunder as one tears a kid. And in another place it says, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes which were binding his arms became as flax, and he threw them asunder. Now, that wasn't a real common experience for everybody in the Old Testament, but it was for some now and then in places and times when something extraordinary was needed, and so it is available in those extraordinary circumstances today. Haven't you heard of stories where somebody is enabled to do an extraordinary feat, like lift a car off of a pinned husband or escape from a raging rapist I had a girl tell me a story at one time at Bethel of a most miraculous escape from a guy who forced himself into her car with a knife and she just cried out for the Lord and after that she doesn't know what happened and she was in her house safe ninth the spirit enabled some Old Testament believers to interpret God's revelation in dreams. Remember Daniel? Daniel interpreted Pharaoh's dream about the future of Egypt, and then Pharaoh says, Can we find such a man as this in whom is the Spirit of God? Remember Peter then, several hundred years later, says on the day of Pentecost, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, Your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. If in these latter days in which we live, we are to expect that there will be dreams in the church for the good of God's people, then had we not better pray earnestly that God will raise up some Daniels to make sense out of these things? Because dreams are extraordinarily Ambiguous and subject to deception. Finally, number 10, the Holy Spirit gave some in the Old Testament the gift of prophecy. Remember the time when Moses gathered with 70 elders of the people of Israel at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And uh, it says this, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was upon him and put it on the seventy elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But then they did no more. Evidently, what that text is teaching is that God willed for these seventy elders to have a taste of this prophetic gift, but then take it away from them and to prevent them from going on using it the rest of their lives. It seems to be kind of an act that points forward to something greater on the way. And so Moses, five verses later, says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. 
and the Lord would pour out His Spirit upon all of them. And then you read in a new light, perhaps, Acts chapter 2, where it says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in these latter days. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will all prophesy. So it's a big question before us. What is this gift today? Is it for today, 2,000 years after Pentecost? Is it in exercise at Bethlehem? Is it what I'm doing now or is it something we're not doing? Well, instead of answering that question this morning, let me just tell you what I would like to do with you in the future. We have these series of messages on the Holy Spirit that will take us right up to Pentecost Sunday. And we're going to have a great festival of the Holy Spirit in June. In the evening, starting next Sunday, I would like to begin a series teaching from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about spiritual gifts because I don't have that in my plan for Sunday morning. We need very much to understand what these gifts are, how many of them are valid today, are all of them, how should they be expressing themselves, and so on. And so starting next Sunday night, we'll do that, and so I invite all of you to help me. I really have lots of questions about this. I do not come on here with a sewed-up theology of of, uh, the charismatic gifts or the sign gifts or the ordinary gifts or anything. I'm eager to learn with you as I study with the staff and with you these three chapters. So let me just close this morning by taking you back to the Aswan High Dam. Even before the dam was completed and the reservoir was officially unleashed for the benefit of Egypt and its power, there was a river flowing around the dam and benefiting the people downstream. They drank from it. They uh, used it to water their fields. It moved their wheels. It was their life. They needed it. It was wonderful. They enjoyed it. But then the dam was opened, and 10 billion kilowatt hours was made available for all of Egypt And the blessing of the Holy Spirit that was flowing in a pretty narrow valley was given to carry the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to the ends of Egypt, or we would say from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's what I pray we'll be experiencing today. All that they experienced down in the valley before Pentecost and 10 billion kilowatts more for our joy and our sanctification and the good of our city and especially for the good of those frontier peoples who have yet to even hear that there is a Holy Spirit available to those who believe.